we are for a special edition of the Mockingcast, a Monday night. It's like Monday night football, but completely different, other than the fact that we're taping on Monday evening. I have with me, live in studio, my lovely wife, Lindy Jones. Hi, babe. And coming to us from Virginia, Charlottesville uh, properly, or or Charlottesville, Virginia, I was going to say specifically, in particular, whatever have you. Not in the same house, but the same town. Will McDavid, Mockingbird staff alumni, all around uh, gentleman and scholar, and the animating force, force of the zeitge- zeitgeist of Mockingbird, DZ, David's all gentleman. Last night was a big night, and lady. Gentleman and lady. I could be a gentleman tonight if you'd like, babe. Last night was big. Was, was, was big. I mean, it was the, this was the Game of Thrones season finale. Well, uh, Will, what did, what did you think? I'm dying to hear from you. We just posted a long review that Will wrote, and he is the, he's the maester, if you will, in my, in my Game of Thrones uh, horizon. He's the maester. So we're making nerd jokes already. He's the maester. Oh, yeah, he's the maester. You know, he's, he's uh, when I need a raven flown my way, he's the guy that, yeah. if I need a bit of, if I need a bit of milk of the puppy. Gotta forge your link, Scott. But, um, you know, I think, yeah, last night I was blown away by it. I thought it was, I thought it was awesome. Um, the camera work was really, really cool. It was, love the director who did it, thought last week was great too. But this was just so much going on and they managed to tie it all together. And it was really satisfying in a way that I, I you know, I feel like that most of the time with this show, but it was really, really satisfying. Do you, Will, where are you with the critique that uh, we skipped over too many steps to get to uh things sort of got rushed to get to sort of destinations. Yeah, I can see that on the one hand. I mean, a lot's moved forward. Things have been rushed. And I was just watching, rewatching season four with a friend who's in town and isn't caught up a few days ago and everything was moving slowly. And it was nice to see some more kind of drawn out conversations, a little bit more nuanced, stuff like that. But on the one hand, too, there a lot of them are sort of back in the same place. The Starks have retaken Winterfell. The Lannisters have River Run again. And I think a lot of um, people have pointed that out. But yeah, I just I think it's really hard when you're uh, a showrunner and you don't know where the narrative's going, don't know where the story's going. And I think one thing they've advanced a ton in terms of the plot, but in terms of the character dynamics they haven't necessarily pushed that forward that much you know jamie is uh basically exactly where he should have been um six or seven episodes ago which is sort of caught between the cersei ideal and the brian ideal you know trying to figure out where his loyalties lie and for some of those central character problems um apart from probably sansa and daenerys those are the only ones where i've seen the characters pushed along a lot you could argue john because he's melancholy but i just don't think we see enough from him to really say that mm. Mm. my fa- so there is a, a review of this in the new york times and they uh this is my favorite line in the review uh it says that um they're talking about cersei and kind of her trajectory and the whole story uh or ask jamie who arrived in king's landing just in time to see cersei claim the iron throne in her sinister leather power frock looking like a cross between Malfeasant and thin white Duke era, David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he goes, they go and say, did he look happy? This beloved sister finally achieved her dream of absolute power. He did not. 
Instead, the Kingslayer, who had seemed torn this season between his twisted devotion and nobler impulses, seemed to be wondering if he might w- one day be called upon to be a Queenslayer. Mm. Do you guys, do you think that's where this is heading? Lindy? Wait. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. He's, He's going to have to take her out. <laughs> she's she's gone crazy. She's doing mass mass murder, mass murder in the streets. She took out a whole religion. <laughs> you can't have that stuff. The Kingslayer won't stand for that. No, he's he's he is. It, it, J- Jamie Lannister does have these flashes of honor. Yeah, he's a loyal guy, but I think he he knows when enough is enough. He's like Arya. He takes out what needs to be the guys that need to be taken out. Yeah. The phrase are out of hand. It's time. <laughs> it's time. It is time. It's time to go. Sometimes you need a Kingslayer. You need a, you need you need a, a, a Kingslayer with a gorgeous blonde mane. You need a good assassin. Yeah, I mean, he 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 has these flashes of honor. I think one really interesting thing about Jamie, if you uh, read his entry, you know, in, in the book, his kind of record in the history book about himself, it's pretty humiliating. And but at the same time, when you see him in, in the show now, even though he is on the more honorable side, he's still sort of the cool kid. You know, he has to diss Walter Frey about not being enough of a warrior. He has to um, he has to kind of be really sharp and, and, and witty and on and project this power. So I, I think it's fun to see somebody who's legitimately got a lot of kind of panache, but is also in this sort of form of repentance at the same time. I want to see he and Brindo spin off buddy comedy. <laughs> where they kind of, you know, like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern kind of thing, like where they kind of, you know, that would be to me like the ultimate, like that last scene in the, in the second last episode when they're kind of parting and they, Wave hands like, hi, buddy. Yeah, but we don't find out. We didn't find out where Brienne ended up or whatever happened with the Hound. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm assuming they're going to be doing something with the Hound uh, next season. But it felt a little uh, as good as it was to see him. It felt a little pointless. But maybe maybe I'm not seeing the whole picture here. I'm clearly not seeing the whole picture. That's actually the problem with reviewing TV shows, period, because you just don't know anything could happen next. Like they, the, I, the whole battle of the bastards, the, the chief criticism was why on earth did Sansa not tell John that this was going to happen, you know, or that there was even the slightest possibility that there was this huge army coming to save them. And that's not all these, if they just hold, if they just held on for like, a mi- you know, two more days, then maybe they'd be in much better shape. Did you guys see the Game of Jones where Seth Meyers watched it with who's the Saturday Night Live actress? Leslie Jones. Leslie Jones. Like he watched the show, and it, at the point where Jon Snow and the second last episode is about, it looks like he's gonna die. Oh my god, you're a warrior, John. You're a warrior. You're gonna die. You're gonna die. Oh, that boy got nine lives. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Rick. I'm, you got a zigzag. You got a zigzag. Well, they they then like they had Sansa just say, "Oh yeah, sorry about that." Yeah, I, my bro. Bad. Sorry, yeah. my Apologies. bad. You know how Littlefinger is. He might not have showed up. I don't want to get your hopes up. I know. I've just become this like totally large and in charge kind of stone faced, you know, boss lady out of the blue after being like a sniveling yeah. idiot for four seasons, <laughs> and then. Uh, because it suits whatever's going on. And, it, you know, it, it is kind of nice to see her sort of uh, vindicated, I guess. But that to me was like, I, they, they, they were, that was a little too little too late. But that's small potatoes. I think, Will, you, Will I'm, I'm with you. It was one incredible set piece after another. And that kind of sense of, you know, righteousness, uh, you know, that, that sense of satisfaction was, was palpable. Do you feel like I, I feel, you know Howard Stern made this observation recently that it's the second to last episode 
and so many of the serial dramas that becomes the big one. You know, that I felt like, I mean, I felt like the finale was amazing, but in some sense, like the table set in the Battle of the Bastards. By the way, it's Leslie Jones was like at the end with the dog scene. Uh, Leslie Jones was like, Oh, you can hear it. I wish I was nicer to people in my life. But, you know, how do you think somebody's going to develop when every day your father says, this is my bastard, Ramsey. Hello, this is is my bastard. (laughs) I mean, that's just tough on you psychologically, I would think. Oh, Will, everything all right there? Yeah, everything's good. We just got treated to a lot of noise sound effects. <laughs> ah, that's what's happening. Um, sorry, Scott, we can uh, we can edit this out, I guess. Uh, exact. Hmm. Where, where, where were we? We were talking about the fact that Ramsey is a bastard and was told that way. That it was said. I mean, I can't imagine the psychological import of saying, well, of, uh, you know, that basically every uh, time your father introduces you. Hello, this is my ba- Will, what do you think about the, 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 the some more moral gray areas that they kind of reestablished a little bit in the, in the last episode? Yeah. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was really well done because we have, we have this sort of evil faith militant. And I think just with sort of the zeitgeist right now, that was how everybody was going to take it. And certainly they were um, pretty bad apart from just being, you know, not just being out of step with modern norms, but they were also, I, I think, you know, did some bad stuff, but shame. You see her, <laughs> shame. Yeah, you see her coming into uh kind of torment Nella and you're like, yeah, this is great. You know, Cersei's my girl. She's getting back at these fundamentalists. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a, like eight foot zombie in the room who killed everybody's fourth favorite character a couple episodes ago and they're screaming and you suddenly realize like, yeah, I, I really can't root for any of these people that much, but I can root for most of them, all of them maybe now that Ramsey's dead a little bit. <laughs> no, nobody was rooting for Ramsey. <laughs> I know yeah. even the, the High Sparrow, definitely there were a few episodes there where he was making the most sense. And that was what was so entertaining always on with the reviews I was reading in the like the A V club and everything. Everyone would everyone would be like, you know, this despicable high sparrow who who is the only one saying anything uh, you know, good about privilege. He's talking <laughs> he's really wise about privilege, but he's maybe his his gender politics are way off. And you know, it's it they're they're they were clearly trying to play play the audience with that character. I, what what do you guys think the final analysis is? Because at first he kind of comes off almost like a Pope Francis kind of guy. What what in the final analysis? What Pope you th- Francis, except he's a jerk. <laughs> uh, I think he's, he's like, like if Pope Francis, if Pope Francis kept his simplicity and became Tarkmada. <laughs> nope. At the beginning, at the very beginning, it seemed like he was when they first right. introduced him. He was sound, seemed to be like a paragon of virtue, and he was like mm, feeding mm-hmm. feeding soup to people. Well, we need breathing room. I think. I well, think, that's kind of how people got sucked into his religion, though. Yeah. And I feel like it often is. I mean, you. I think one of the lessons that of Martin in Game of Thrones is that it's not necessarily people trying to do evil that makes stuff messed up, but it's these misplaced ideas of good. You know, just protect your children. Cersei is a great mother. Um, that didn't work out, and neither did the High Sparrow's humility. And I think it really paid off for them to 
go out on a limb a little bit and probably spend more money than than they might have for a one season character and get Jonathan Price because otherwise it just would have been way too easy to sort of shunt him into the category of a charlatan. And I think pretty revealingly when Cersei tries to get Unella to confess to being a charlatan, this really reductive account of religion, of the faith of the seven, um, Unella says, I'm ready to go to my God. So there's sincerity there. And I do think they probably are doing a lot of good work for the some of the poor of Westeros, the small folk, if you will. And you we're so that's much what, on that's the, what that's what people said about Mussolini. You know, like <laughs> it's very good to the poor. You know, but, but, you know I, it's interesting because Cersei it seems like the person that of all the main characters right now ha, like seems the most malevolent. Like there's not a noble I, even the children thing. It's like it's a protector children, but in a way that doesn't really honor any of their subjectivity or agency. I just think she's it, it, she seems like an exception to the rule in that, and maybe Ramsay too. But I mean. She's a character that is increasingly hard to be sympathetic to. I mean, I think that like with 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 most of the characters, there's a lot of Simon used to set Picard or there's a torture. Connect. With Cersei, it just gets more and more self-absorbed Picator. I mean, like it, it, it's it's a, uh, you know, like it, it's just dark. Well, the, I, I agree. Uh, I think in the book, she's just gone completely mad. You know, and like that, that's the, the insanity is more pronounced in the books. And this is it. This was the first time this episode was the first time where I felt like she's uh, cutting herself off from any emotion. And it was just like uh, it, it, that, you know, the, with the power frock that she's wearing and looking like Bowie. I mean, power all of a sudden she looks like a like a supervillain in a way that she hasn't really before. And uh I don't know. I've never the, the I will say the, all the reviews I've read have been it, They've made their point at this that about women being capable of extreme violence and extreme evil, and you sort of I'm personally I'm ready to to for them to back off it a little bit and show that women women can also be kind and like sweet because if it's just like it's just like one weak man getting killed by uh by another strong woman just after a like one after Real another life, after man. another. Real life. Yeah, there you go, Lindy. <laughs> I mean, that's a straight up dope. Theon, Jon Snow, Loras. Uh, is there is there a single brother here that's not just brothers will let you down? Consoled, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brothers will let you down. It's it's the moral of the story. That your sister's going to take over, and your brothers will let you down. Well, as as I think Will, I think as you told me, like there's great, there's this great sort of feminist uh, overtone to his books. What did you say? It's it's a it's a a dragon a, queen leading a army of eunuchs against you know and uh, against uh, the patriarchy of Westeros, right? What what do you say? Yeah, yeah, but, it was a it was it was a it was a great YouTuber who was talking about how. This season has been a little kind of feminist, but they're not necessarily departing from the books in that. Because yeah, he says, I mean, it's about it's a, yeah, it's about a dragon queen leading an army of castrated men across the sea to destroy a medieval culture. And it's not <laughs> except now that culture is ruled by a woman. <laughs> yeah, and like the worst woman of all time. Yeah, so like, the meanest woman of all. The meanest, yeah. Mm. I don't know. I, I'm I'm uh, be interested to see how they where they take it. 14 episodes left. I I don't see how they can do it, but I certainly think they got a better chance than George R. R. Martin. Is that do we know it's 14 episodes left? Is that 
that's what they're saying right now. But George said it was going to be seven books, and I there's no possible chance it's going to be seven books. I mean, will, will am I wrong? I think there's no way they can, he can tie up, you know, because the show, you like you said, in 14 seasons and 14 episodes, it's going to be tough there. And George R. R. Martin's narrative is much more sprawling than the books because half of what they've been doing this season is killing off his side characters and, <laughs> you know, cutting <laughs> cutting away the narrative threads that aren't going anywhere. And yeah, they really did some pruning in this episode. That was, that was <laughs> front and center. You can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Just blow up a building with a lot of char- side characters. And it takes care of a lot of plot lines you didn't want to have to worry about. I'll miss Marjorie. I mean, she's like, again, she's like the only one of those aristocrats that actually could have a shot at ruling well. You know, <laughs> she would have been a, not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> she's gone. Um, and you know what's interesting, man? The Red the red Witch, man. The red, like, she gets, you know, like, okay, when we need her, she's good. When we, uh, you know, we, when we need her, we tolerate her, get to resurrect snow. Then she's out. Don't want to put her on trap. Diva, like, I'm like, dude, make up your mind on this woman. Like, you've got a relationship of convenience with her. Like, it's, uh, you know, uh, very strange. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Like, all of a sudden, we're sort of, she's, she's got kind of misty-eyed at the end there, and, and you're kind of feeling sorry for her, and you're feeling like, whoa, Jon Snow, that's so mean that you're exiling her. But, like, wait a second. You did just sacrifice, like, a 12-year-old girl. No, I love her answer. I love her answer. I mean, what would we do? The horses were sacked. I mean, the, the times were hard. Yeah, <laughs> like, of course you had to kill the kid. <laughs> what, wouldn't you have done it? Well, no. <laughs> is, da- is Davos the unfallen man here? I guess he's the one. He's the one. Uh, he's always set, do, sort of doing and saying the right thing. Yeah, well, you, you spend that time as a smuggler, get your hand mutilated and stuff. You you learn a few things. You do, you do, and yeah. Other than being humiliated on on the Blackwater and made fun of for his kind of lowborn status and all of that, he he actually is a seems pretty capable. Not that he has any good ideas when they're plotting before the Battle of the Bastards in the tent, but he seems pretty capable <laughs> nonetheless. Yeah. Well, it's, it was a very satisfying finale as the, as the last couple finales have been. Yeah, and what's where are we going next? I mean, do we have like so no like don't we have basically all Targaryen like isn't Tyrion probably part Targaryen through some kind of sexual assault and then and then Jon Snow has a Targaryen thing. So are we going to have three dragon riders? Is that going to like defeat, you know? I don't I don't buy Tyrion cuz I feel like I mean, not yeah. Don't want to disagree too much here because it it could easily be true. But I just think that you can't have everybody be a hidden Targaryen, you know. And <laughs> at some point, and they're not blonde. That is why the truth. Can't you? Why can't you? Well, if the sort of great trope of fantasy is having the kind of outcasts and little guys save the world, you know, if the Frodo Bagginses of the world are the ones that are going to make a difference. Eventually, rather than just having a bastard who's also a Targaryen and like a dwarf who's also a secret Targaryen, <laughs> eventually you just need to have a dwarf who's a cool character. You think Tyr- <laughs> you think Tyrion is like a, a hobbit going bad, like hobbits going wild? <laughs> you know, like, he's much he's much more fun than the he's hobbits. He's not really very hobbitish. I mean, he doesn't have the Shire. He doesn't have any happy memories. The hobbits I, always have like a happy home. I value your counsel. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. There, was there sort of like a, a romantic, scent, like you know, moment there between them? I thought maybe I, I he was. I thought gonna, maybe, yeah. He, and, and same with John and Sansa. I was like, wait, which? Where's this going? What's yeah. my favorite part of this season? I think though, when it was with when the spider is talking to the other red priestess, 
and they're arguing, and, and Tyrion goes, my friend has a healthy skepticism toward religion. <laughs> like, Tyrion's, I would just love this season, Tyrion's one-liners. I know. It's, it's, uh, it, both of those like eternal skeptics are the guys that are sitting there with the, with the, with the, with the she who has been foretold and the dragons and all this stuff. And it is, uh, I'm not sure in the long run, we're going to remember this series at all for Martin's critique of religion. I'm just going to throw that out there. I think it's, uh, we're going to remember it because of the incredible amounts of intrigue and cool, like just maneuvering that's going on. Yeah. And I think like where Game of Thrones theologically is interesting, right? It's because on one level, he does a great job of crafting a thoroughly pagan world, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of, like you don't see some of the Judeo-Christian echoes that even you see in like Tolkien as Tolkien's trying to think of a primeval narrative, you know, like Genesis one through 11 for Europe, you know, like what's the prehistory and, but you still see some like non-pagan echoes there. Like, but at the same time, so you get this thoroughly pagan religiosity and yet you do get this simulusis et peccator. Like you do get this sort of honest theological anthropology where people where the people in game of Thrones you know, the people you like can immediately degenerate into vindictive, you know, vengeful, obsessed people. And the people that you think are subhuman, like Jamie Lannister appears first, can become these people that have graced moments of nobility and compassion. And I think the most interesting, despite the paganism, like the the, the kind of um, sinner and saint anthropology still doesn't get weeded out. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I definitely definitely agree with that. I think you see a lot of theology of the cross too, in the way that you know Jamie only becomes a great character after he has this reversal. After his ego is based on being the best swordsman in Westeros, and he loses that. And I think you see a lot of these these great characters suffering these big reversals, and that's one kind of problem of Cersei's is she won't let the reversal happen. She's She's got a very lo- low bottom, very, very low bottom <laughs> yeah, in, a- yeah. in AA speak. It's almost, is there a bottom? That doesn't look like there is one. It's just a no. gaping abyss. I don't believe there, there is one. But another, I mean, maybe this is, this is a change of subject, but another kind of thing with the theology of Game of Thrones, I think it was Paul Zoll who said that uh, belief in the paranormal is sort of the first steps of religion. <laughs> <laughs> and Martin's doing that in a, in a way, right? He's it's this awesome pagan culture and whatever. But the thing that makes us really interested in it is that there's these kind of awakening supernatural forces at play. And I feel like you know fantasy is being caught up in something larger than yourself. And the world of Westeros is gradually being enveloped by you know who's going to be Lord of Westeros doesn't really matter when there's going to be ice zombies bearing down on you in several months. Um, so is the whole thing about climate change? <laughs> no, 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 Scott. It's about eschatology. There you go. It's about eschatology. Yeah. What, what about, do you think that the, the moment where uh, they're talking about your God is an evil God, cause it would demand that kind of sacrifice of a child. Is that a veiled, um, critique of, or not so veiled critique on, uh, atonement and, uh, the, the cosmic child abuse, uh, trope that you hear carted around in regards to substitutionary atonement perhaps <laughs> perhaps <laughs> i don't know i think what's interesting is he leaves you to the point where you can't really compare any of the religions to one that's 
in our world. And so you find yourself trying to figure out which one's the right religion or which religion would you believe in if you were in the story? Like, would you be with like the the Lord of Light because he can like make things happen? He, or? The Lord of Light delivers. He delivers. He's I like mean, the mailman. He's but like, the mini-faced he, God is a little mysterious. That's kind of interesting. And then you have the seven. I, I, the seven are kind of my least favorite, but I do like the God's would. I mean, it's interesting because it leaves you like a an absolute wanderer and like trying to figure out these religions and what you in the story, what's really true. You don't even know. I want yeah, a God who, who delivers on the supernatural and B, if there's ice zombies coming, I want the fire, Lord of light and fire. <laughs> like, I feel like he's really, that's where you put your well, mind. You got ice zombies coming. You might want the Lord of light yeah. for that one. I want, I want the fire. I want the fire God too, because we are kind of headed into a little bit of a dualistic scenario. I think we're all rooting for the humans over the ice zombies, no matter how many steps Cersei blows up. Speak for yourself, Will. (laughs) Yeah, the seven are just, they're a little bland. I feel like Martin's whole kind of supposed religious critique was probably just because he got bored of the seven in book three. It's exactly... Well, he said he was trying to, he was was trying to do something. He said as a lapsed Catholic, the Trinity never made sense. So he was trying to sort of do something that parodied the Trinity and he was thinking of medieval Catholicism and the Reformation tensions. And I mean, he's, he's actually made statements about that. So there's, but it's a loose echo. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a, it's not it's, a close the echo. The sparrows are not going to help you when the ice zombies oh, yeah, come. Yeah, yeah. What's a sparrow? I mean, they might give soup to people, but they're not, they're not gonna, there's well, no I, power there. I think it's, I, I do think it's been much more pronounced in the, in the book, in the, in the show, especially this season than you ever see it in the, in the, in the books it's there and it's sort of entertaining it's him kind of toying around with all these different uh, re- kind of religious iconography it doesn't feel like the show it was I, it, I will i think you're you're right about jonathan price like you couldn't have that character was was really enthralling because if they'd had someone just ham it up as some sort of evil bishop you know it would have been much less interesting than the guy we got who was kind of this you know mix of this Machiavellian a hole and then just like a kind of a reformer type who's who's standing against like what we what we've noticed is just the most the, the 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 game that they're playing is so dehumanizing and awful and you know Will's always thought that perhaps the uh, you know the, the ice zombies or the 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 others the White Walkers that that represents a, a judgment on humanity and that that's actually what they're coming down to exact is some the, the judgment of the seven. I guess that's kind of been dispelled this season. Is that right, Will? Um, or, I think it's probably been dispelled when you see the children of the forest creating them. But you know, I think especially since Martin's um, a pacifist and I think was even a little bit of a hippie back in the day, um, at least with Vietnam War and that kind of thing. I mean, you could view it the same way you do nuclear weapon apocalypse, like a judgment on humanity, but humanity created it, right? So, or or in this case, the children of the forest created it, but they did that as a weapon, as another method of control, as another way to assert power. And I think eventually um, that sort of power, that cycle of violence comes back and, kind of hurts everyone at least i think that's martin's message in the books and it seems to be coming through on the show as well you know it's interesting too that like how the religiosity in game of thrones like some of the deities seem like i like a pope uh benedict wrote this um when he was ratzinger he's always ratzinger to me but uh Mm -hmm. he wrote this book called truth and tolerance and in it there's a great essay about 
you know, the old trend in religious studies, like, you know, was to think like in the 19th century, well, all religions are really the same kind of thing. And you got to, you know, they're all, they're, they're all kind of uh, the same kind of genus or, you know, or so like, let's see the commonality in them. And then the kind of postmodern move has been, well, no, religions are completely isolated narratives and, you know, there's no, um, commensurable, uh, you know, it's incommensurable. You can't really, you know, you can't find that many common threads. And he says, well, I think what happens is, you know, after animism and a kind of paganism where you just make the gods in your own image, he thinks one of three things happen like enlightenment, like through, through human reason. So pre-Socratics are like this, you know, and, and platonic, uh, philosophy. And then you see, see in the enlightenment as well in Europe, or it's this mystical identity where there tends to be like all reality is one, right? Like the East or like prophetic revolution where a, 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 a prophet comes like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and says, there is a God, but not the God that is the figment of our imagination. Or it's, you know, the revelation is kind of over against us. Um, and the God is for us, but it's sort of rips down the kind of gods we make in our own image. And I think some of the deities in Game of Thrones seem like they're not just in the image of the people. And some seem like they're just the culture reified. Like the seven strike me as, oh, the mother, the father, the warrior. Like it just seems like, okay, we've taken our archetypes and culture. And even the the the, the water god, you know, the god, you know, of the, uh, the ironborn. The drowned god. The drowned god seems like, you know, it, despite the baptismal, like it, it, it also seems pretty anthropomorphic. You know, again, the guy, the Lord of Light, it seems like he, he's <laughs> not really like, he's got some transcendence. And he some kills over- the kid every once in a while, but, you yeah. know, other than that, there's... But see, some of the, I mean, I think some of the, young. He'll keep some, you of, young. Uh, some of the religiosity seems more mysterious and transcendent than, than others in the, in the yeah, theological but, world. Yeah. I think that, I mean, the red God, I agree. It's, it's much more appealing than the sort of anthropocentric modalism of the seven for that reason. But the red God, something about that transcendence too, though, if there's not enough of a human element, if there's not an incarnation or some sort of better revelation than people looking into the fires, um, you can end up sacrificing a kid because maybe that's part of the appeal of transcendence. It's so over against humanity that it'll make demands that seem terrible to us, but we can justify them because, um, you know, it's it's the red god is holy other, um, and the great other is very holy other. And <laughs> I think you can just see that. Uh, that over againstness can sort of turn bad when you don't have something anchoring it in the human world. Have, well, my friend, can well, I ask, can I ask one final question of Will? Absolutely. Uh, Will, where before we leave, where is Howland Reed? What's going on? <laughs> Just to give us it straight. Well, I mean, from one book reader's perspective, Howland Reed just got blown up in the high sept. But I don't know. I mean, Greywater Watch um, moves apparently, Dave. So it's really impossible for me to tell. But somewhere in the back. <laughs> Somewhere in the neck. There Somewhere. you have it. There you have it, folks. We, we've we've solved that question for you. Thank you for tuning in for a bonus episode where we said a lot of things about Game of Thrones. It was it was not a linear thing. It was it was a Zen circular recorded on Zencaster. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Scott. Thanks. <laughs>